Psalm 69. We think about uh, the last week of the Lord Jesus uh, during this season of the year and of the suffering that he underwent. And I'm afraid that uh, possibly our understanding that he was God the Son, a divine being as well as human, that he knew what was taking place and would take place and that he uh, told the disciples ahead of time that he'd be betrayed and that he would be crucified and then rise on the third day. I'm afraid that somehow that may make it seem a little mechanical to us and that we will fail to appreciate the emotional impact these events had on Jesus Christ in his humanity. Uh, it hurts if your friends betray you, etc. In the 69th Psalm, I think we have the emotional impact brought out for us in probably a dramatic way. David wrote the 69th Psalm, and David lived a thousand B.C. And as he writes, he's describing things that are happening to him and the way he felt about these things. But as we've seen so often, David, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is carried beyond himself to uh, see and feel the things that are uh, going to take place to the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, the things that he says don't apply just to him, but to Christ. No psalm is applied to Christ more often in the New Testament than this one, except the 22nd Psalm. The 22nd Psalm starts out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? goes on to say what Jesus' enemies would say on the cross, uh, that he trusted on the Lord. Let him deliver him, seeing he is supposed to delight in him. And then the fact that they would pierce his hands and his feet, and that they would cast lots for his garments. Well, that's the 22nd Psalm, but this Psalm also contains an awful lot that applies to the Lord Jesus. In the... uh, (laughs) Got a little... There we go. There we go. (laughs) got the uh, opening part here, which speaks of the condition of the psalmist. Try not to pop it, okay? Uh, In uh, verse 1 and 2, the psalmist speaks of the danger of drowning. Verse 1, Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. He feels overwhelmed with his troubles and uh, with his problems here. He has prayed about it and God hasn't answered. Verse 3, I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. He has strong enemies. In verse 4, they that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. They make him pay restitution for wrongs that he hadn't done. Then I restored that which I took not away. David was the king. He had strong enemies. Think about President Reagan. 
Think of the strong enemies that Reagan has. And uh, think of the recent months that he's been through and the efforts of those enemies to pull him down. Uh, David had similar enemies. And uh, he's overwhelmed with this. As we say, this not only applies to David, but applies to Christ. Not necessarily every detail of the psalm, but much of it does. And much of it is very explicitly applied to Christ in the New Testament. Uh, This part right here, they that hate me without a cause. Jesus said to his disciples, that was written about him. In John chapter 15, verse 24 and 25, he says, If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not sinned, but uh, the degree of sin that they have is what's meant. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Jesus applies that to himself. Think of the hatred uh, that the enemies of Jesus had, strong enemies, uh, powerful, influential men. And uh, yet he was guiltless. It was without a cause. In that sense. Now, David confesses his sin. Jesus, of course, had no sin, and this doesn't apply directly to Jesus. But David, while denying the false charges, acknowledges his sin. In verse 5, O God, thou knowest my foolishness, and my sins are not hid from thee. And he's concerned that if God doesn't act on his behalf, then other godly men will be discouraged in their walk with God. Verse 6, Let not them that wait on thee, O Lord, God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those that seek thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. Well, there's the condition and the confession. Then you have the cause of him being in this situation. Why did they hate him? Why have they so surrounded him that he feels overwhelmed and flooded and drowned him? In verse 7, it says, Because for thy sake I have borne reproach, shame hath covered my face. He had taken a stand for God. He had identified himself with God's cause, and there were those who were opposed to God's cause, and thus they opposed David as he takes a stand. And, of course, so it was with the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of a man like Don Wildman in our day, the Methodist minister over in Tupelo, Uh, who at some point, like all of us, got fed up with the flood of pornography that's coming into our society. And he began to speak out and to do what he could to combat it. And all of a sudden, he was thrust into the limelight. And now he heads up the National Federation of Decency, a leading organization that opposes uh, this and seeks to encourage the people of God to uh, act in concert against those that promote this and and the corporations in our country that pay for uh, the uh, advertisements, etc., that advertise in these magazines and sponsor these uh, video productions and so on that are so full of sleaze and uh, pornography. Don Wildman could feel, for thy sake, I'm experiencing all this opposition. Notice it was zeal for God's house, not just God's cause, but God's house. In verse 9, For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. 
and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. David was zealous for God's house. So was the Lord Jesus. God's house, the zeal of that house, could refer just to the whole cause of God, his truth, uh, to stand for things that God calls for, to stand against God, things God opposes, like false priests, false practices, as David did. Remember again that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ applies this to himself, or it's applied to him by his disciples. In the second chapter of John's Gospel, we read about Jesus cleansing the temple. He goes into the temple and he is horrified at the abuse that the temple is being put to in their day. It was a big rip-off. We're familiar with those who use the cause of religion for a rip-off. It's been much in the paper recently. Uh, Well, uh, notice here. It says uh, in verse 13, the Jews' Passover was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge, a whip of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. And he said unto them that sold us, Take these things hence. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. It's meant to be a house of prayer, not a place where you rip people off. And uh, you can imagine the opposition this generated on the part of the influential leaders who had set all this up. His disciples, viewing this, thought about this verse of Scripture. It says, And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Jesus was consumed with zeal for God's cause. That's why all the religious leaders were so opposed to him as he stood up for what was right and truth. What is zeal? The zeal for thy house hath eaten me up. A great Church of England bishop around the turn of the century, Bishop J.C. Ryle. I hope you're familiar with Bishop Ryle's writings. In his book, Practical Religion, has a chapter on zeal in religion. He says, zeal in religion is a burning desire to please God and to do His will, and to advance His glory in the world in every possible way. This desire is so strong when it really reigns in a man that it impels him to make any sacrifice, to go through any trouble, to deny himself to any amount, to suffer, to work, to labor, to toil, to spend himself and be spent, and even to die if only he can please God and honor Christ. A zealous man in religion preeminently is a man of one thing. It is not enough to say he is earnest, hearty, uncompromising, thoroughgoing, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. He only sees one thing. He cares for one thing. 
He lives for one thing. He's swallowed up in one thing. And that one thing is to please God. Whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he's thought wise or whether he's thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, he burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. Well, do we know anything of that zeal that consumed David and consumed the Lord Jesus? Ryle goes on to say that if it's true zeal, it'll be a zeal according to knowledge, not a blind zeal like Paul had when he was persecuting Christians. It will be a zeal from right motives and not party spirit as so often happens. It will be tempered with love. Paul said, though I give my body to be burned and don't have love, it profits me nothing. And it will be above all things zeal for Things sanctioned by the Word of God. And not just some particular tangent I'm off on, but things that are sanctioned by the Word of God. Now, we see the cause of David and Jesus' being in this condition where they're virtually drowning from their enemy's opposition. It's zeal for God's cause. The consequences that this brought upon them is spelled out a little more. In verse 7, it says, Because for thy sake I have borne reproach. Shame hath covered my face. It brought condemnation. It brought alienation from his brothers. In verse 8, I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. Remember Jesus? It says that his brothers, he had brothers, his half-brothers did not believe in him until after his resurrection. Then he appeared to James, his brother, and and Jude also was a brother who came to believe in him. But before his resurrection, they didn't believe. Uh, It brought alienation from his brothers. It brought castigation for his godliness, for his piety. In verse 10, When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb to them. And finally, it brought denigration of the lowest sort. In uh, verse 12, They that sit in the gates speak against me, and I was the song of the drunkards. They made up ditties about David and about the Lord Jesus, doubtless. Now, what do you do when you're experiencing that kind of enmity and drowning, alienation, condemnation? You pray. And David does that even more earnestly. Notice his call for God's help. In verse 13, his request But as for me, my prayer is unto thee, O Lord, in an acceptable time. O God, in the multitude of thy mercy, hear me in the truth of thy salvation. Deliver me out of the mire. Let me not sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the water flood overflow me. Neither let the deep swallow me up. Let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. That's his prayer. Why should God do that? Why should God undertake 
David gives his reasons. Number one, God is merciful. Hear me, O Lord. Verse 16. For thy loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. And because David is God's servant. Verse 17. Hide not thy face from thy servant, for I am in trouble because of the extremity of the situation. Hear me speedily. Draw nigh unto my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. And because God knows all about this. He can see it. Thou hast known my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. Mine adversaries are all before thee. God, do something. I'm reminded of Luther's prayer. Before the diet of worms. Luther, a priest who dared to say that the church was in error in its teaching when it taught that a man was saved by faith plus works. Luther began to trumpet out, No! Not by works. It's by faith alone, by grace alone, and by faith alone that we're saved. Justification by faith alone. God clears guilty men, not because of their good works. We don't have good works. All of our best works are filthy rags. God clears as a gift by grace because of Christ's work. And the means is when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We believe His claim. We trust in Him to save us as a gift. We surrender in true repentance. Luther began to trumpet that out. What happens when you stand up for the cause of God? Luther's called before that august body, the Diet. Held at worms, and all the mighty of the Holy Roman Empire come together against this little priest who's dared to raise his voice. And he is to answer, Martin Luther, will you take back that which you have written? Will you recant? We'll give you a day to think it over. What do you do when you're in that situation? You pray like David prayed. We have Luther's prayer recorded. What did he pray? Here's what he prayed. Very similar to what David prayed there. Oh God, do thou help me against all the wisdom of the world. Do this. Thou shouldest do this. Thou alone. This is not my work, but thine. I have nothing to do here. Nothing to contend for with these great ones of the world. I should desire to see my days flow on peaceful and happy. But the cause is thine. It is a righteous and eternal cause. Oh, Lord, help me. Faithful and unchangeable God, in no man do I place my trust. It would be vain. Oh, God, hearest thou not me? My God, art thou dead? No, thou canst not die. Thou only hadest thyself. Thou hast chosen me for this work. I know it well. Act then, O God. Stand at my side for the sake of thy well-beloved Jesus Christ, who is my defense, my shield, and my strong tower. Very similar. You pray, you cry out to the Lord. David complains of brokenheartedness. How, do you, how does a man feel when this happens to him? How did Jesus feel? When he's betrayed, when his friends, his disciples leave him, they flee. How did he feel? Verse 20. 
Reproach hath broken my heart. All this condemnation. Broken my heart. He didn't just sail through it without its making its emotional impact. And I am full of heaviness, anguish of heart. Notice the absence of friends. I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Could you not watch with me one hour, said Jesus to his disciples, and then you will all forsake me, which they did. And it made its impact. Reproach had broken my heart. And notice the actions of the enemies in verse 21. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. I don't know that that happened to David, but it happened to the Lord Jesus, didn't it? You read about it in Matthew 27, the description of the cross, verse 34. They gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. A little later he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it says at that point a soldier dipped a sponge in vinegar and put it on a reed and held it up to him to drink. The death of Christ so ordered, a thousand years later, so that the things that David's writing about, many of which he himself was experiencing, those events fall out to the Lord Jesus as well. What happens when you oppose God's cause? What happens when you set your will in rebellion? What happens when you do that which you want to do even if God has forbidden it? And that's your basic approach to life, which it is a large percent of our society. What happens? Well, you bring a curse upon yourself in the long run. And so you have here an awful curse pronounced by David on those enemies of God. In his day, in Jesus' day, in our day, in a sense, it's a prayer, but it's not a personal thing. These are God's enemies, and uh, in another sense, it's a prediction. As through the Spirit of God, he pronounces, he predicts what will take place. In verse 22, let their table become a snare before them. That which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Israel had all these blessings. They had the prophets. They had the temple. They had all these blessings. Let it be turned into a snare. Let their eyes be darkened, meaning darkened spiritually, that they see not. And make their loins continually to shake in fear. Pour out thine indignation upon them, and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Wouldn't that be an awful thing to have happen to you, to anyone? Let their habitation be desolate. What happened to Jerusalem? The Jews were scattered for 2,000 years, weren't they? And let none dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom thou hast smitten. And they talk to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. Add iniquity unto their iniquity, and let them not come into thy righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them die, and not be written 
with the righteous. What an awful curse. Prophesied. You see, the content of it, is it consistent with biblical teaching? Well, in a real sense, uh, when you say, Thy kingdom come, which we prayed in the Lord's Prayer, we are saying, May God's cause prosper. May every enemy of His be conquered and put down and dealt with according to their deserts. And uh, we pray the same way, in a sense. Uh, actually, the Apostle Paul, in Romans 11, 9 and 10, quotes these verses about, Let their table become a snare, let their eyes be darkened. He said that's exactly what's happened to Israel. That when they rejected the Lord Jesus, and then the great majority of them, their eyes were blinded. It's happened to them according to this curse. There is a remnant according to the election of grace, but the rest were blinded, he says. And he quotes this verse. Two thousand years of that. Isn't that awful? It doesn't just happen to Israel. It happens to those who oppose God's cause and His Son. And if you're not for Him, you're against Him. Jesus said, He that is not with me is against me. No neutral ground. Two kingdoms. We're in one or the other. We have one king or the other. Well, uh, we see these things and... uh, We pick up here the suffering that Christ went through, that David went through. You know, uh, it's an old story, but an appropriate one. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the front balked, talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. And another group, a nigger boy, lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. And another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes, said, Why should I suffer? It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in this world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a sheltered life, they said. So each of the groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most. A Jew, a Negro, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a a thalidomide child. In the center of the plain, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. 
Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Let him die. Let him die so there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved, for suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. We have a God who suffers. And he takes us through that in this passage here. David, towards the end, as so often, comes out with some confidence and assurance that he is being heard and that God will undertake. And uh, he says in verse 29, I am poor and sorrowful. Let thy salvation, O God, set me on high. Verse 30, I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify Him with thanksgiving. 34, let the heaven and earth praise Him, the seas and everything that moveth therein. He gives His reason. Verse uh, 33, for the Lord heareth the poor and despiseth not His prisoners. Verse 35, God will save Zion and will build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and have it in possession. The seed also of His servants shall inherit it. His church will stand and will go forward. They that love His name shall dwell therein. The confidence that He comes out with. Well, we see here that we have a God who suffers, who knows what it's like. And this psalm pictures that so dramatically. After World War I and all the suffering that was experienced there, an author wrote about how that suffering God relates to us in our suffering. He said, If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn marks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus, of the scars. The heavens frighten us, they are too calm. In all the universe, we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the bomb? Lord Jesus, by thy scars, we know thy grace. If when the doors are shut, the doors of our heart, thou drawest near, only reveal those hands, that side of thine. We know today what wounds are. Have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. Other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didn't stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. What other God has wounds? Does Allah have wounds? Not a God has wounds, but thou alone. We have a God who has wounds. But by His stripes we are healed. Those wounds were for us. He took our guilt upon Himself, and He offers us healing through faith in Him. Again, uh, we understand that those wounds demonstrate the amazing love of God and of the Lord Jesus. 
What wondrous love is this, says the hymn. Oh, my soul, oh, my soul. What wondrous love is this, oh, my soul. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. When I was sinking down, sinking down, when I was sinking down, beneath God's righteous frown, Christ laid aside His crown for my soul. Well, what's the proper response on our part of a God who suffers, who has wounds, who has such amazing love? Only one proper response. Zeal. Zeal for His cause. The quality needed. Zeal for His house to consume us. Again, one of the hymn writers says, May Thy rich grace impart strength to my fainting heart. My zeal inspire. As Thou hast died for me, so may my love to Thee, pure, warm, and changeless be, a living fire. That's the only proper response to a God with wounds. What about it? Are you flooded with problems, things overwhelming you? Feel that God wouldn't understand? He understands. Is your zeal lagging? Look at the cross. Look at that wondrous love and ask that the zeal of His house might consume you. It may be that you're one of those who is bringing a curse on yourself. You're on the other team. You are purposing to do your own will. You're living as if you had no God to answer to. Don't bring that curse on your head. Who can bear such a curse? You can bring it on your head while you're still alive, you see. Those eyes can be sealed shut so they'll never be opened. You can cross the deadline between God's patience and His wrath. Now, let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, what about it? What does all of this suffering mean to you? Uh, that uh, Jesus experienced this heartbreaking reproach and agony, uh, this being hated without a cause. Does it uh, speak to you of His love and of His ability to succor you and to encourage you in your pain? Go to him as David did and spread out your case before him and ask for his help. Ask if your zeal is lagging that he would renew it, that he'd give you a fresh vision of Christ's love for you and move you to a zeal that is a living fire in response. Or if you have been opposing him, never really surrendered, never taken him, for your master, bringing a curse on yourself, apply to him as the one who was cursed on your behalf and ask that he remove it and that he unite himself to you. Pray like this in your heart. If you're really willing for him to be your master, Lord Jesus, I cease my rebellion. I trust you by your wounds 
to cleanse and change me. Thank you for those scars. I open the door of my life to you. Come in as my master. I trust you as my Savior. Amen.